shun evil companions. You know, it may not be in the Bible, but uh, that's the quote I heard most often from my dad while growing up. <laughs> shun evil companions. Now, it's good advice, and the Bible does warn us about the corrupting influence of violent, immoral, greedy, drunken, and gluttonous friends. And it comes to no surprise, even if you can't quote those verses, because we all recognize the negative influence of evil friends. But there's another aspect of peer pressure that we may not have thought about, and that is the wrong advice from good, moral, even godly friends. Indeed, good Christian friends can actually lead us away from God's will for us without realizing what they're doing. And for many of us, the danger of being led astray by Christian friends is greater than our being led astray by evil friends. So we've got to be ready for it. Paul was. But even then, as we see in our text for today, it took all the resolve he could muster to stay true to the course he believed God had set for him. Like Jesus, he had set his face toward Jerusalem, and he wanted to be there by Pentecost. He had nine men traveling with him to deliver offerings from the Gentile churches for relief of Jewish Christians in Judea, and he felt personally obligated to go all the way to, to finish the course he'd set upon. But his friends didn't want him to go. And they made it known in several ways. Let's see what they did. We're in Acts chapter 20, ready for verses 36 through 38. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they should see his face no more. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Now, obviously, this was a very emotional goodbye. You know, Paul and the Ephesian elders prayed together. And then they began weeping and embracing and, and kissing him. They were grieving because Paul had told them they would see him no more. Now, obviously, they were very close. Now, he had led these men to the Lord. He had nurtured them in faith. He had watched them mature into elders of the church. There were very strong bonds holding them, binding them to one another, and they did not want to let him go. Now, they were elders, so they understood what he was doing, and they respected his decision to go. They didn't say he shouldn't go, but it was obvious they did not want him to go. And they conveyed that message very well. I'm sure it would have been enough to dissuade some from doing what they felt 
they should do. Because emotional bonds can be very, very strong. And all too often, they have the power to keep someone from doing what they are convinced God would have them do. That's not to say that emotional bonds aren't good for us. We want Christians to be close, to love one another. But it is possible for God's will to be thwarted by Christian friends and family who don't agree with a course of action another believer feels he should take. And that's especially true if it affects their being together. You know, many don't want to let go, even when there is a conviction that God is calling someone elsewhere. Now, this is often true of preachers who decide it's time to leave because most preachers don't stay in the same place for 40 years. And fortunately or unfortunately, you've not had to say goodbye to a preacher who felt God was calling him somewhere else. But we have had to say goodbye to youth ministers. And I actually did cry over one in particular who left. I might say who. We've also had families move away that we shed tears over. And I'm certain some have cried when a child said that they were called to the ministry and then headed off to what their parents felt was an uncertain future. Emotional bonds can sometimes be stronger than they should be. And Paul had to literally tear himself away from the Ephesian elders. And then things got worse. He found friends who felt obligated to actually tell him not to go. Let's read on in chapter 21. And when it came about that we had parted from them and set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And after looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days. And they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. And when it came about that our days there were ended, we departed and started on our journey while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. And after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then they, we went on board the ship and they returned home again. Now the word for parted actually means torn away. After Paul and his traveling companions tore themselves away from the Ephesians, they set sail and ran a straight course. They, they had good winds that took them to Kos and Rhodes, islands off the coast of modern Turkey. Now, Rhodes you may have heard of because of the Colossus of Rhodes. 
one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a a bronze statue, 105 feet tall, that straddled the harbor. Ships passed between its legs until 224 B.C. when an earthquake broke it apart. In Paul's day, the legs were still sticking up from piles of rubble. Like that neat picture. But anyway... From there they sailed on to Patara on the coast where they boarded a a larger ship and then sailed 400 miles across open sea to Syria, just north of Palestine, and landed at, at Tyre where the ship was scheduled to unload its cargo. Now this made for a seven day layover and Paul took the opportunity to look for any Christians in town. Now as far as we know, He hadn't been there before and didn't know anyone there. But he found some Christians and spent the week with them. Apparently, they became very close, very quickly. So close, in fact, that they soon began telling Paul what he should and shouldn't do. Luke says they kept telling him through the Spirit not to set foot In Jerusalem. Now, by that, did he actually mean the Spirit was instructing them to tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem? Or was that merely a conclusion they drew from what the Spirit revealed to them? You know, if the Spirit was actually telling them to tell him not to go, he disobeyed the Spirit by going. But I I doubt that's the case. Most likely, the Holy Spirit made known to them what would happen to Paul. So they could encourage him and strengthen him for what was ahead. But the message shocked them. Paul already knew that bonds and afflictions awaited him. The Holy Spirit had made that clear in every city he visited on the way to Jerusalem. But when they found it out, they concluded that he should not go to Jerusalem and kept telling him so. They thought that was what the Holy Spirit wanted them to communicate, to warn Paul and to stop him from going. But Paul knew better. He was convinced that he should go. Now, isn't this interesting? They both had the same facts. Facts actually received from the Holy Spirit. But they interpreted the facts differently and came to different conclusions regarding God's will. The Christians at Tyre said it meant he shouldn't go. Paul viewed the information as an advanced warning of what lay ahead so he could be ready for it. So who was right? Well, most would conclude that history supports Paul's conclusion. Because by going to Jerusalem, he got a free ride to Rome. And the opportunity to preach to the emperor's guard and even his household. Others are quick to point out, however, that his going resulted in imprisonment and eventually his death. Which may have been avoided if he'd only listened. I would imagine the believers entire felt that way. They listened to the Spirit, and 
They were trying to offer godly, spirit-directed counsel when they told him not to go. Now, that should tell us something very important. But it's not that we should always do what our Christian friends tell us to do. It warns us to be very careful about trying to determine God's will for someone else. It's good to discuss our understanding of His will with others and to bounce our thoughts off each other, but we better not assume to know more than does the person God is trying to direct. If they are sincerely seeking His will, they will have an inside track that we don't have. And we better respect it. Paul knew what God wanted him to do. But his well-meaning friends made it very difficult. He had to endure one emotional scene after another, this time even with children who were apparently trying to stop him. And that can be really rough. You know, I can still remember Nikki and Matt hanging to my legs as I tried to go out the door for evening meetings and visits when they were little. Now, I think they were kidding. But kids and what they want can make it really hard to do what God wants you to do. But Paul's resolve held only to be tested further by friends who beg. Verses 7 through 14. And when we'd finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. And as we were staying there for some days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own hands and feet and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of Gentiles. And when we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. <laughs> then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. Paul and his party sailed down the coast from Tyre to Ptolemaeus and spent the day there with the brethren. Now, there's no mention of any attempt to dissuade him there. It must have been refreshing for him. And then he sailed on to Caesarea, the chief port of Palestine. There they stayed with Philip one of the original seven deacons, and 
quite an evangelist in his own right, having evangelized in Samaria and baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. And he was the father of four virgin daughters who Luke notes were prophetesses. Now, this is interesting. And it challenges the conclusion that women must always keep silent in the church. It is true that Paul had to tell the Corinthian women to keep silent. But that may have been because they were causing problems. You know, Philip's daughters hadn't spoken publicly. It's unlikely they would have been known as prophetesses. And by mentioning the fact that they were virgins, Luke may have been indicating that they had taken a vow of chastity and had dedicated themselves to lives of ministry and service. This was a very ministry-oriented family. But yet, in spite of their roles in ministry, there's no word of Philip or his daughters challenging Paul's plans, at, at least not yet. But when Agabus arrives, things change. And the pressure mounts. Now, Agabus is the same prophet who had foretold the famine in Judea. Some years earlier, the famine that Paul was getting funds from the Gentile churches for relief about. So he was well known as a prophet. And now he very dramatically demonstrated what awaited Paul in Jerusalem. He took Paul's belt and bound his hands and feet. Now there's some debate as to whether he bound Paul's hands and feet or his own. The text really isn't clear. Then he declared, in this way, Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. That's all it took to get everyone upset. Paul's traveling companions, including Luke, you caught the we there, and the local residents, perhaps now including Philip and his daughters, began begging Paul, not to go. Paul finally cried out, What are you doing? Breaking my heart. They were pounding. The word used is interesting. They were pounding his heart like a washwoman pounding clothes, trying to soften his resolve. But they couldn't do it. He knew what he had to do. And when he made it clear that he was ready to die for the name of the Lord Jesus, they fell silent. It wasn't that he wanted to suffer and die for Christ's sake, but he was willing to do so if necessary. And I like what Oswald Chambers has to say about this. He says, to choose to suffer means that there's something wrong. <laughs> to choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will, as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. Well, Paul was convinced that it was God's will 
for him to go to Jerusalem. And even the threat of death couldn't stop him. When his friends became convinced of his resolve, they stopped begging. I doubt that they were all convinced that he should go, but at least they stopped trying to dissuade him. They at least recognized that it might be God's will for him to go. And they simply entrusted him to the Lord's will. And that, quite frankly, is the best approach for Christian friends to take. You know, we need to recognize that we may not know what God is trying to do in someone else's life. So we better not try too hard to convince them what they should or should not do. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with being good friends and having emotional bonds, and we shouldn't hesitate to say what we think and even try to persuade if we feel strongly about something. We should also recognize that if God hasn't given specific direction in His Word about the matter being considered, we may not know God's will. And at that point, we should simply entrust ourselves and each other to the will of the Lord. Now, each of us has to do what we feel God wants us to do. It's wise to check out our perception of His will with others whose counsel we respect. And of course, we must always make sure that it's consistent with His revealed will. But ultimately, we have to make a decision and step out in faith that we are doing what He wants us to do. And there, we should find support, not opposition, from our brothers and sisters. Let's not make it more difficult for a brother to be obedient. If a brother is acting in faith, let's simply trust the Lord's will is being done, and let's encourage him to obey the Lord's will. And if you need to take a step of faith this morning by publicly expressing your desire to trust and obey the Lord, we invite you and we do encourage you to do so now.